Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Any visitor to China will be acutely aware of the amount of security, and nowhere is that more visible than in the nation's capital, Beijing. Guards are frequent, cameras are plentiful, and the electronic data mining is extensive. In this podcast, we'll be hearing from Bill Bertels, China correspondent for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation based in Beijing. In his time in China, he's become well acquainted with the security restrictions that are part of everyday life, as well as the challenges they present to the foreign correspondent. So my name is Bill Bertels. I'm one of two ABC correspondents based in Beijing. I've been with the ABC quite a while, but I've been back in China with them in this role for the past two years. What I wanted to talk to you about was um, security. This is my second visit to Beijing and I was just here last year and now I get the impression that there's a security guard on every corner, that there wasn't here before. Is that an accurate thing that I'm noticing? Sort of. Uh, because it's the capital city, the security here is uh, quite a bit more noticeable than in, say, Shanghai or some of the other big cities. Certainly, there is a much greater security presence in general in Beijing and in most large Chinese cities compared to Australia or London or New York or, you know, comparable places. And this could be something like every subway stop, you have to put your bag through a metal detector. Then you have a couple of people who pat you down with those handheld metal detectors. This is for everybody at every subway stop. I became so used to this that when I went to London, a city that has actually had tangible terror attacks on its subway system, I was kind of taken aback at how you just stroll on in. No x-rays, no metal detectors, none of that. I thought, it's funny, isn't it, that Beijing doesn't have a track record of terrorism on its subways, and yet they have really intense security, and this is just normalised here. So, yeah, look, there are private security guards on every corner for private developments. There is obviously a huge police presence in general across the city. So much of it, to my mind, is for show. It's about the presence rather than responding to any tangible threats. But in the past year, has it increased? Is there an increase in it? Or is it just a, it's more noticeable compared to Western cities to other cities? Difficult to say in the past year because it depends on events. When the party congress is happening, when Donald Trump's in town, of course it's far more noticeable. In general, for the past couple of years, those uh, bag scans have been happening. Uh, they've always been happening since I first came over here in 2008. No, that's not true, actually. I think I first noticed them in about 2010. But I think in general, what I'm noticing politically is that the government has uh, really started to take pride in how secure China is compared to particularly Western cities. And you see this in state media articles talking about occasional violence towards, say, Chinese students abroad, or talking about the chaos of protests and so forth abroad. And there's now a real pride in how comparatively stable and secure the streets of Chinese cities appear to be. And so that's the biggest difference I've noticed. The security's always been there since I first started coming here almost a decade ago. But what I'm really noticing now is that there's outward pride about the results of so much security. You mentioned earlier that you think it's all for show, that you believe this is all for show. I've noticed that a lot of the security guards around aren't armed. They've maybe got a walkie-talkie. A few had fire extinguishers. Yeah. 
what sort of credible response are they expected to give? I, w I wouldn't say it's all for show. I mean, there has, of course, there was a terror attack on Tiananmen Square a few years back uh, involving people who drove a car down there. There was a terrible terror attack in a train station in Yunnan a few years back. There have been terror incidents over in western uh, Xinjiang. So if there wasn't so much security, maybe there would be more of this. So I wouldn't say it's all for show. However, the extent of it is uh, so large. If you go to a football game, for example, you'll see five to 10,000 security forces collectively guarding the event. It is a show of force in the sense that it's excessive to the perceived threat. Now, I don't know for sure, I'm not working in China's state security apparatus, but you just get the general sense that a city like London would be more justified in having this much security on, say, its subway compared to Beijing. Uh, as for whether the guards are armed, some of the uh, people's military police here in the diplomatic areas, they do carry pistols. Yeah. The fire extinguishers are obviously aimed at putting out self-immolations at sensitive times in uh, Tiananmen Square, for example. There was one self-immolation the day before the party congress over in Xidan, just west of Tiananmen Square. So I don't doubt that these security uh, forces can respond mm. quite quickly. Even if you look down at the local neighbourhood level, you have the, the grandpas and the grandmothers with those armbands on, the volunteer security forces. Those guys aren't going to do anything, but they will ring or alert police. They will tell somebody who can come and do something if, for example, there's a foreign media crew in their neighbourhood. Tell me about the volunteer organisations then that are doing this. What's their brief and what's their scope for, for doing it and why are they doing it? This has been a big thing for many decades in communist China. Uh, you have uh, volunteer security people appointed for all of the Danways or appointed for all of the Xiaochus, like the local neighbourhoods. These are just the eyes and the ears. Now, I think a lot of the uh, elderly volunteers I see doing this quite enjoy this job. They're literally sitting out in the sun, talking, chatting, they don't really have to do anything. But I do remember once we were in a Hutong area uh, doing a story and a, an old guy with one of these armbands saw us and very excitedly started yelling across the road to where some police officers were who came along and of course we had to show our IDs and they asked us what we were doing. So, you know, these uh, old people, for example, might seem harmless enough and you certainly see lots of them during major events that are politically sensitive, but they play a role. They really are the first cog in a very massive security apparatus. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's one level, that's a physical presence as well, but cameras, they are everywhere. What are they looking for? What are they monitoring? Where's that feed going? Yeah, so a few years back, the Beijing police talked about this operation where they could now see every area of public space in the city on uh, surveillance camera uh, well, if you look where we are right now, I'm sure you, there's one there. So that camera would be looking at us. Wait, wait, what there's camera? There. Oh, okay. there's, a, there's two cameras there about 12 metres away from us. Wave to them, I didn't even see that one. There's another camera there about 20 metres away from us. Yeah. You look up this way, uh, I'm sure. I mean, on top of these buildings, you often get a lot of cameras. Um, on the roads. I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily see them all the time, but they're ever-present. Yeah. And this stretch where we are on, of course, is being surveilled by three cameras I can just see in our nearby area. Obviously, they are looking for crime. They are looking to, uh, you know, collect evidence for, you know, criminal cases and so forth. But there's all this talk about China developing a national social credit system, uh, an idea where people's uh, identity cards could be linked to uh, credit points for behaviour. 
Now this would probably be administrative in many senses. If you don't pay your parking fines or whatever, you would lose points. But there was some suggestion uh, in recent reporting that people who jaywalk, for example, who are caught on surveillance cameras jaywalking using facial recognition technology, they in future could be pinged for jaywalking. Potentially, if you can completely blanket a city in surveillance cameras, aside from fighting crime and obviously fighting politically undesirable types, there may be broader uses uh, for all this surveillance when it comes to ranking people's social credit points and things like that. This is yet to play out, but this is what's being speculated at the moment, and there are concrete plans for a national credit system to be rolled out in 2020. And I've seen videos online where people are filming the monitors that show like the facial recognition in action and that sort of thing and it is really quite alarming at how how accurate that is and how much data that is getting just on everyday movement. Yeah and this is only going to become uh, more and more prevalent and widespread. Uh, perhaps these ideas will uh, expand to other countries as well because you Imagine the benefits, for example, for traffic regulation from having mass surveillance of all the roads in Beijing. Uh, remember, there is currently a, a law in place in Beijing where the last digit of your number plate determines what days you can drive your car. And for usually one or two days per week, you cannot drive your car. And so this is obviously a pollution measure and a congestion measure. How is it enforced? Through cameras. If your number plate ends in a seven, and on Tuesday, number sevens can't drive, you take the car out, ping, the cameras have got you. You get your fine. You don't pay that fine. In a few years when this national credit idea actually comes together, that would influence uh, other aspects when you try and say, buy train tickets or plane tickets. Uh, the availability, the price perhaps could be dependent on your credit score. These are all ideas that the government is just trialling at the moment. They're experimenting with these ideas. So how does this kind of surveillance thing uh, extend to the, the online realm? Uh, there's a lot of censorship, as we know, in China for the media and for uh, your online web usage. But are payments now being tracked and is all this data being collated? Is there a file somewhere about Bill? Yeah, there would be. And it's very, very easy to track all the payment data. It's very easy for these massive companies like Alibaba and JD they have a track record of everything that you've bought, every transaction, every WeChat person that you've sent money to, every Alipay uh, contact that you've sent money to, received money from, it's all there. These companies in China uh, are in a more vulnerable position than say American equivalents uh, because you know the Communist Party could effectively coerce them into uh, handing over whatever data they want. We don't know the extent currently of the relationships between these companies and the government when it comes to data collection and data sharing. However, I have no reason to have any faith in any private Chinese company that has my data. Um, no reason to think that they would actively seek to protect that data against government requests for that information. Uh, so everybody is doing mobile payments in China. If you're some dissident, if you're some activist, if you're some political person who has a reason to be concerned, you probably are still doing all your payments and transactions through these mediums. And uh, for that reason, if, let's say you're a lawyer and you've taken on some tricky cases, uh, and if there were investigators looking into you, perhaps they could, in collaboration with these various companies, look into your transactions online, maybe they could build some sort of case against you. For example, there have been a few lawyers in recent times who, as part of the prosecution cases against them, have been accused of receiving foreign funding 
for their legal activities which violate some form of Chinese state security law. This may be an extreme example, but obviously if you have all that data for personal transactions readily available in future, these sorts of things could be used potentially against people. There's a big risk about a society accepting all of this surveillance as something that's going to happen and something that they're going to live with. And I, I kind of feel that, you know, in the, in the Western world we've been warned by George Orwell. People are not as concerned about it here as they are in the West because for the past 60 years people have not been encouraged to stand up for individual rights and to advocate for civil liberties against the idea of big government. In fact, the way the propaganda system works here is the opposite. People are constantly told that the government is looking after them and that the government should lead in all facets of life. So I don't think there's the same general awareness here about these issues of privacy and about data and about your information getting uh, in the wrong hands. I think people are very worried about scammers because there's a track record of a lot of you know, mobile phone scams, internet scams. People are very concerned and knowledgeable about that. But the idea that the government could misuse your data, sure, people who have had bad run-ins with the government, you know, political people, they're aware of it. But I don't really hear average people raise these issues. It's not like the way people talk about Facebook having your data or Google having your data. People here don't talk about that, at least with me, when we do these stories about mobile payments. People generally talk about how convenient it is. And heck, I use them all the time. It is really convenient. Can I ask how the surveillance affects you working as a journalist? Because you, uh, more so than a lot of people, must be under, you would feel, additional scrutiny. Uh, yeah, before surveillance. The first problem for us is there is a general mindset that is well embedded here in China that the foreign media is out to get China, that the foreign media is not friendly to, to China. This is effectively taught by the government. It's reinforced through various messages. This means when we ring up people, companies, whoever, there's this reticence where they go, oh, foreign media, and we may not even get their approval to go and do an interview in the first place. So that's not a surveillance thing. That's just a general reluctance to engage with the foreign media. But say we get past that. If you do a sensitive story, if you're here in Beijing, how does the surveillance interfere with us? I don't know. I feel like, yes, we're under surveillance, but they're not that concerned with us. They've sort of worked out that the foreign media really doesn't have that much power anymore domestically in China. So it's not like we're getting followed or anything like that. But if we go and do a story in a smaller place outside of Beijing where it's not so common to have foreign reporters, then yes, sometimes we get followed by police, sometimes they turn up. But often they come and talk to us and say, hey, what are you doing here? What's your, give us your ID, show us your passport, give us these details. They might take us in for a bit of questioning, we need to register you. It's pretty civil. End of the day, most of the time we get a story, they don't get in the way, they just slow us down a bit. How's that changed over time then? Has the job of a foreign correspondent from Australia become easier with this kind of surveillance or is it becoming more intense? The impression I get, and remember I've only been back in this job for two years, I was, I was working here originally in 2010, but not for the ABC. The impression I get is that it's about as hard as ever now to get access to do interviews to do this sort of job. I'm talking about in you know, the last, say, 20 years. People tell me in the 1990s, believe it or not, things were a lot more relaxed. 
getting access to relatively high officials was a lot easier. Now, no chance. We are so shut out. We are very managed by the various information departments of big state-owned, or either state-owned departments, state-owned companies, or you know the foreign ministry, for example. We're small fry. We can only deal with people at the very bottom. And I get the impression as China has become more confident, more self-assured, it realizes that it doesn't really need to deal with the foreign media as much anymore. Private Chinese companies do because they're trying to interact with Australia, with America, etc. But I feel like the government feels it can put out its own propaganda on social media, it can pretty much sideline traditional foreign media, and for that reason uh, people are less willing to give us access because they don't see us as being as useful as we were 20 years ago. Now this might be a better question for some of the older hands, but that's certainly the impression I get. It makes our job tougher. As for the surveillance and so forth, yes, that makes it tough. But I think more broadly, what makes it difficult for us is that underlying attitude over here that A, we don't particularly like the foreign media, B, we don't really need the foreign media. That's Bill Bertels, China correspondent for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And you have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Please leave a review there. As always, reviews are appreciated. You can follow Bill Bertels on Twitter. He's at Bill Bertels. And you can follow Latrobe Asia. We are at Latrobe Asia. That's it today for the Asia Rising podcast. Until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. And thanks for listening.